I find this time of year stressful. Uh, I don't mind that hustle and bustle so much. I find it stressful because it's basketball season. And here's why that's stressful. Not because it's like driving to practice or driving to games. It's because my team loses all the time. I'm an Indiana fan, and it used to be a good thing, and now it's not. And it's painful and stressful, and I'm usually actually quite relieved when the season's over. Like, the last game, I go, at least that's over. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not even lying to you. That's how I feel these days. Losing's hard for me. I don't, I don't do very well. Uh, but I don't think I'm alone. I don't think I'm alone. I know I'm not alone. I want to introduce you to someone who felt the same way about losing. His name is Jeremy Veenstra. I know that he felt the same way about losing because I was there for his first game in college, and I was there for his last game of college uh, at Calvin College, now Calvin University. We were a part of the same recruiting class at Calvin. It's just that he was recruited. <laughs> and so I showed up, and they were very nice to me. <laughs> they let me hang around. Anyway, I think we actually have a picture of Jeremy Veenstra, and Jer it's really interesting that he was even there. He was recruited by lots of different places, actually, Notre Dame, Central Michigan, Western Michigan, and you think, well, what was he doing? Why did he go to Calvin? And it turns out it had to do, like, this family lore. If you go to the record books, you'll actually see the name Veenstra quite often. Uh, you'll see Jeremy sometimes. He's quite good. He was a good player. Uh, but you'll also see his uncle Mark who scored the ball apparently at will and also rebounded every shot he ever missed. He was very good apparently, just incredible. And there was this thing, I guess, that happened in Jeremy's heart, like he wanted to be a part of that. It was so important to him that he set aside scholarships to some amazing institutions like Notre Dame. And he said, no, I'm gonna go to my family's spot. I'm gonna put on the same uniform or at least a similar one to my uncle, right? And he, he wanted so badly to be a part of it. And he was, he was very, very invested. Uh, it, it was, in a lot of ways, it was his life. If you wanted to know where Jer Bear was, you just go to, just go to the gym or the local bar. I'm going to be honest. Um, but those were, the, those were the two places to find Jer Bear. I like that guy. He was so great. Um, but I will tell you about his last game. We were playing Albion. There's a school in Michigan called Albion, and they're called the Britons, and this makes no sense to anybody outside of Michigan, but this is the thing, and they had some very large farm-type players, and by the time we were seniors, all we had was Jeremy. <laughs> like, that was it. We had a few players transfer for money, Brian Foltice. I mean, the kid hit the game-winning shot in the national championship game our freshman year, and then he transferred out, went to Cornerstone, because Cornerstone can give scholarships, Calvin could. So we lost Brian. Aaron Winkle, player of the year nationally, he, he graduated. I mean, we were just leaking players over the years, and then we just had Jeremy left. And so what Jeremy had to do is get bigger and bigger because people were hitting him harder and harder while we played, right? And it, it just got to be such a toll on him. And this last game against Albion, Jeremy took things to a new level. I was the student assistant, so I was sort of taking statistics, so I was tracking like, oh, oh, he already has double-digit rebounds. Oh my, that's his seventh block. Can you believe it? He just scored his 35th point, right? And I'm just going down the line and I'm just thinking, and I actually started writing him a note. I started writing him a note because there was, a one, there was one moment where he got fouled so hard that he started bleeding from his eyeball. I'm not even talking about his eye, like his brow or anything, his eyeball. Did you know it's possible? 
physiologically, you could bleed from your eye, I guess. And so, like, he just, like, put a piece of tape over his eye. And it's like, let's, we're back in the fray. Let's go. And he took the game to overtime by getting an and one in the most unlikely way. And he just was actually bleeding and sweat and tears. And as I'm just writing the note, I'm just like, this is the one they're going to remember, Jeremy. <laughs> I don't know why that made me emotional. Anyway, um, I guess it's because he wanted that so badly to be remembered, to be on the list with Uncle Mark. But we lost. We lost that game. Um, we just didn't have enough firepower. We, we couldn't pull it off. And so we're going into the locker room, and I've been in some locker rooms where the team lost their final game. I knew what to expect. There's going to be a lot of emotions. But it was a little bit more than what I expected. I could actually hear Jeremy before I got to the locker room. It was like he was grieving in a guttural fashion. And I actually came into the locker room and I saw on the floor his bloody uniform. He had ripped his jersey off and there was blood. But then I noticed that uh, actually there was a trail of blood. Uh, he had been punching the lockers with everything he had. And so his hands were bleeding so profusely that he was trailing it into the shower. And so I could hear this sort of screaming, so I ducked my head around. And there, the shower's actually on. He's sitting there in the rest of his jersey, and he's just bleeding and weeping. I just remember thinking, well, that's an overreaction. That's a little much. Jeremy, it's okay. But you know what? I think that there was something very human about that moment, something that we could actually all really relate to. Because for Jeremy, he was losing some infinite thing that he had always wanted to grasp. And he would no longer be allowed to grasp it. He had to let it go. And the way he had defined himself had been in what he does. He gets the rebounds, he blocks the shots, he makes the baskets. The way he had defined himself is the team he belonged to. And now he was on the outside looking in amongst the sort of unwashed masses, the, the others of us who never did get recruited, right? He was just common at this point. And he felt it apparently quite deeply. You know, th he, there's this way that we all do this. We define ourselves by what we do or what group we belong to. We even start to say, and I don't belong to that group. Right? You might travel through Rome and you might ask somebody about their religious background. They might tell you that they're Catholic. And a lot of them might just really mean I'm not actually Muslim. They're just defining themselves by what group they belong to and certainly what groups they don't belong to. And there's this very strong identity. You can see it all throughout history. Do you know that there's actually this rabbinical prayer that you can find where the, where the rabbi prays, thank you, God, for making me a man and not a woman. Thank you, God, for making me a Jewish person and not a Gentile. This very strong dividing line, this strong sense of I belong and, and part of me belonging and getting to be excited about that is I know you don't belong. This actually even shows up in the temple itself. You know, they, they had dividing lines. We have a picture. I think it might actually be a little hazy. This is my fault. I didn't give them the best quality shot. But if we do have a, a, a sort of diagram up there, what you can see is the many dividing lines of the temple the outer structure is the, the Gentiles' court. Sure, you can come that far, but no farther. You're held at arm's length from the glory of God, so to speak. And there's actually a little wall I want to talk about in just a second 
dividing where the Gentiles could be and where Jewish people could keep going. And then if we could look closely enough, and maybe we can't quite see it, there's a court, then in, in sort of an interior fashion for women. And they could come that far, but no further. And you know what? It actually, the dividing line goes even further because inside you could be male and Jewish, but only the priests could go a little bit further. And only the high, you know, there's just a winnowing where everyone is understanding just how close they're allowed to get and just how far off they really are. In fact, this is such a strong sense within this uh, Second Temple Judaism that this, this wall had inscriptions. They've actually found these inscriptions. The inscription says this, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. Not only are we going to kill you if you come across this line, it's your bad, your fault. You're out, we're in. No wonder people end up weeping in a corner with the shower running over them. So many voices telling them where they can go and where they're not good enough to go. So many voices telling them that they're to be held at arm's length from the glory of God. But, but, this barrier is quite literally torn down. But not even just literally, maybe more beautifully, it's figuratively torn down. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two. He says, for he himself is our peace, he being Jesus. He has made the two groups one, the, the Gentiles and the, and the Jewish people, where, where they might have the instinct to say, thank you, God, for making me a Jewish rabbi and not a Gentile pagan. Now he has made us one. In fact, he has destroyed the barrier. He has destroyed the barrier. What barrier is Paul talking about? He's using the word for this low wall that said Gentiles can't come any closer. It's called a balustrade in the Greek. That's the exact word Paul's using. He's saying everyone can gather near. He has destroyed the barrier, the wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. This is actually a beautiful biblical theme that we don't really have time to explore, but maybe you could just sort of think through the Rolodex of Scripture and think about all the times that things were divided so that they could be brought together in unity. Even Adam and Eve, the word, uh, what we see is Adam, or Eve is taken from Adam's side. Um, this, this word konegdo, it means they're like mirror images of one another. They're two sides of the same coin. They are separated so that they can come back together. And what God has brought together, let no man tear apart. There's a, a way in which div division comes back into unity, right? Over and over again, actually, in scriptures, brothers divided that they could come back together. I guess what we're saying is that in scriptures, in the scriptures, there's this theme of dividing things and then bringing them back together in unity, showing that God is more honored by diverse things coming together in unity than by uniform things having no difference at all. This is the beauty of what we're actually getting at when we read through Ephesians. That God is more honored by diverse things coming together in unity than by uniform things having no difference whatsoever. They have different gifts. 
They even have different backgrounds, different cultural uh, expectations that they travel with, and they're brought together at the same table. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful that it starts to travel the world around these days. You'll see many, many people are getting at equality. Certainly. It's not universal, unfortunately, but people are getting at it, and I can actually trace it historically back to Christ himself, I'll tell you, that th this idea of equality. But there's two ways to find equality, kids. You can either tear down the upper crust and bring them down a notch, or you can lift up against something firm and foundational and bring up the lowly. The first way is super easy. The Bastille will come down. All it takes is gravity and the better part of an afternoon. It's easy to bring the upper crust down, but it takes beauty, and I'll tell you, the work of Christ, the firm foundation, the cornerstone, to pull up the lowly into this dignified space of community, echoing the community of heaven. This is what Paul is getting at. Right? So we actually don't even just surround ourselves around the equality that Paul is teaching. We surround ourselves around the one who makes us equal. Otherwise, equality becomes merely an idol, merely a characteristic we hope to manifest. But instead, we surround ourselves around the one who can actually make our hearts yearn for equality make our hearts submissive enough to one another for equality, make our hearts actually do the work that it takes to be equal. This is what we do. We wrap ourselves around the one thing that can handle being our one thing, the one that gave us access to the Father and the Spirit because he destroyed the barrier. So here we are equal equal in the fact that we are deeply loved by the Father, equal in that we need this love desperately, all the same, equal at the same table. It's quite beautiful. It's actually maybe even more beautiful than the fact that the barrier was torn down. Here's another more beautiful thing. Paul says, not only was the barrier torn down so that Gentiles Foreigners of all types, women could all come near into the same community. Not only that, but now they're being made into the temple itself. It keeps getting more beautiful. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, that thing that is strong enough, firm enough, a foundation. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What kinds of dwellings does God live in by his spirit? Temples. He's making us into the temple. Now, I want to be careful to remind you that the word you here is plural that it's in reference to the church community. Certainly there are passages in scripture that say God resides in us, his spirit in us, in a sort of individual sense. Maybe look at Romans 8. But in this case, he's talking about how the spirit is manifest and moving in them as a community and doing things that can only happen, bringing about beautiful things that can only happen in community. 
in this beautiful thing that we're being made into, God is revealing himself to the world. Uh, here's what it says in Ephesians 3. Uh, what God is doing as he builds us into his temple, he says his intent was now that, this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, his intent was now that the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. All these people whose understanding of a kingdom was that the kingdom exists for the good of the king, God, through the church, is teaching them, no, the king exists for the good of the kingdom. He's flipping it upside down, and he's using the church to show it. Paul keeps using this word all throughout Ephesians, mysterion. He's saying God is revealing this mystery, which, by the way, we use in the exact opposite way that he uh, means. We hear the word mystery, and we think, oh, yeah, this unknowable thing. He means the thing that was made known in Jesus, right? Picture Paul traveling to Damascus, ready to say, you aren't allowed to come any closer to the temple to any number of people, ready to work out his righteousness on the tip of a spear. Picture him on his way to Damascus and being interrupted. Picture the mystery being revealed to him that Christ is king now and not just later. Now and not just later, you have to understand that Paul would have not just been stopped in his tracks, he would have been confused. All of the good rabbis knew that the victory of God was coming. All of the good rabbis knew that God would be king, but they anticipated it being at the end of time. How confusing to think that this crucified one was actually risen and made king. How confusing. Paul actually goes away and studies for three years because he thinks, what? The crucified one is the king and it's now and not, what am I to do with this? And so what we have to do is try to get into the, the sort of mind of Paul here as the mystery, the truth, the reality is revealed to him and see what he saw. There's this way in which reality is now and not yet or rather the kingdom of God is now and not yet. My wife made this little diagram. I think we could show it. There, there is this age, this old age that Paul talks about. And that age is governed by sin and the powers and authorities of this world. It's governed by darkness. It's governed by slavery. It's governed by violence. And, 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 and that we have the law there. We have a, a sense of the winter and all things passing away. We have the old self. We have death and sin reigning. But Christ is king now. The kingdom is near. It has happened now. The first signs of spring are taking root. The first signs of spring. The resurrection being the very first sign and the church being the second. The church with the spirit. We're like a crocus. You know what a crocus is. It's a flower that blooms very early in the spring when snow is still tending to fall on the ground. You can go on a winter's walk and find a crocus flower blooming and think, I know spring is coming. That's the church. That's the church. And over and over again, Paul says, the sign that spring has sprung is the unity of the church, the equality, the table fellowship. This is the mystery revealed. You see, Christ, probably a little too small, but Christ inaugurates the kingdom with his death and resurrection. His second coming consummates the kingdom. If I could give you an analogy, 
Even as a pacifist, I'll give you a war analogy. I might have to turn to my pacifist card later. But imagine a World War II analogy where D-Day signals victory is imminent. The landings went off. They fought 44 straight days, tooth and nail. They eventually relieved Paris of being occupied in August. It was obvious the war was won. But a whole nother year of pain. A whole nother year where the old was still around. You see, the kingdom is now, but there are ways in which it is not yet. But we can see signs of light, signs of freedom, signs of shalom instead of violence, the spirit instead of law, spring instead of winter, new creation instead of the old self, life in Christ. The victory of God secured by Jesus, inaugurated by his death and resurrection, consummated by his second coming. This is what Paul is keep, is what he keeps talking about, your old self, your new self. The, the old creation, the new creation. This is what he's picturing, and this is what was revealed to him on the road to Damascus. You see, this apocalyptic language, which we assign to Revelation and we think of as a future thing, is not about the future. It's about what is real now. An apocalypse reveals what is true. It, it, it's like a word you could use, like even like if something was hidden under a blanket and you pulled back the blanket. Apocalypse. I see the thing I was looking for. It, the truth is revealed. The veil is torn. The barrier is destroyed. I can see what is truly real. Now and not just later. This is what Paul wants them to see. That's what he prayed for in Ephesians chapter 1. If you'll remember, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. That, that when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, he's already reigning in the present age, but also in the one to come. And he's filling up the church. So if he's made us full, let us not take ourselves somewhere else. Let us not go somewhere else where they don't have the words of life. They don't have the true spirit to fill us up. We've got to avoid looking over our shoulders at the way things were, like the Israelites in the desert when they said, you know what, why don't we just go back to Egypt? Our pots were full of meat then. That's what they say. Read it. We, were, we had enough meat and we had water. And Moses says, how dare you? I took you out of sin and death and slavery so that we could be oriented towards life we can't look back over our shoulders now. No. Not like Lot's wife looking back on Sodom and Gomorrah. Knock the dust off your feet. Stop living according to the old rules. Stop leveraging the power of the authorities of this world and think instead of what God has brought to bear in Christ. This is how N.T. Wright says it. I don't think this quote is on the screen, but actually put some note sheets outside if you're interested in some of the other nuanced quotes and stuff. He says this, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already sprung. The sun has begun to rise. 
Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That quite simply is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. Stop looking over your shoulder at the old master. Paul says we're citizens of a new world, citizens of a new kingdom. Why are we living according to the customs and the traditions of the old kingdom then? Why are we still obeying the old tyrannical masters? We have a good and merciful king. Quit looking over your shoulder. Here's how Jeremy Begbie says it from Duke. He says, we are called to breathe the fresh air of the future. Stop settling for the smog of this world. Breathe the fresh air of the future. Well, here's how Paul says it in chapter five. We finally did get to chapter five. Be very careful then how you live, plural, as a community, not as unwise, but as wise, right? Not like the old kingdom, the new. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, these, this present age. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Picture the Venn diagram. Stop living according to the old now you have put on something new. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Actually, can I help you for a second just here? This word, it says in almost every translation, filled with the Spirit, which is appropriate in several different places in Scripture, just not this one. The word here is by. Be filled by the Spirit. You will be filled by something with something. You will be filled by something with something. It's just that you won't be very full with most things. That glass is, that glass is gonna stay half empty, I promise. You won't necessarily even be heading in the wrong direction. You just won't be able to go far enough in the right direction. You have to be filled by the Spirit rather than some other thing. Being on the basketball team at Calvin College ain't gonna cut it, Jair Bear. Leave behind the old. Be filled with the new. You will be filled by something with something. And what does Paul think is the signs that we will be filled by the Spirit rather than some other thing, some other pretender? He gives us five verbs. He says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. In the NIV, it says singing or making music. It actually maybe is better saying create poems which I actually find is quite beautiful because back in chapter two, Paul said, we are, we are God's poem. We are his handiwork, poema. So we are to speak with one another, with psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit. We're to sing. We're to make poetry. We're to give thanks. And then submit. The fifth verb that Paul gives us in this run is this scary one. He says, I'll tell you a sign of the Spirit is that you're submitting to one another. Now, he then works it out in more concrete and in, in, in sort of um, categorical ways, but it all is tied back to the fact that we're all submitting to one another because that's what the Spirit is trying to do, bring about unity from things that were diverse, bring us together as the first sign of spring. Try to convince people out there in the workplace. Yeah, you should be submitting to your coworkers. Try it. You're going to need the Spirit, friends. You got to be spilled by the Spirit with the Spirit if you're going to have unity. Filled by the Spirit 
with the Spirit to bring about unity where we will submit. But let's be honest. This is actually where it gets a little scary for a lot of people. Howard Thurman is a theologian from the early 20th century, mid-20th century. His grandmother was a slave. And he describes how she loved it when he read scripture to her, but she refused to let him read Paul to her because she thought Paul was okay with slavery. Why did she think that? Because her masters used Paul to justify the slavery. This passage has been used abusively in houses in the West, in plantations. It's been used abusively. We have to know that. I've had students who walked away because they couldn't, they couldn't find themselves in a space where they could listen to what Paul has to say in the scriptures. It is a scandalous passage. But I have to tell you, it's scandalous in the exact opposite way as it was originally scandalous. It was originally scandalous because Paul was flattening the hierarchy. It was originally scandalous because Paul was flinging the doors wide open to the table fellowship. All that Rome thought of as orderly and right he was subverting, I'm going to be honest. So it, this passage has always been scandalous. We just think of it as scandalous in the exact opposite way because we think he's trying to maintain hierarchy. So what do we do when we come across a passage that's this difficult? How do we, how do we work through it? Well, first, we have to realize that Scripture is written for us but not to us. This is a quote from John Walton, the Wheaton professor. What does he mean? He means that interacting with the scriptures is a cross-cultural experience, even more difficult than Costco at noon. You, it's a cross-cultural experience. I can't just hear the words they're saying and go, yeah, got it, cool, and walk away. I'm gonna have to do some work to excavate what was originally meant Taking a phrase out of context without regard for intent or purpose will lead to misunderstanding at least or very likely worse, which we can see with this passage because people have taken this passage out of context and used it to mangle one another. You think the Spirit would ever produce that? It must be that we were taking it out of context. So what do we do? What do we do with the fact that this was written for us but not to us? meaning it's a cross-cultural experience. Well, we have to ask ourselves a few simple questions. We always have to ask ourselves, why is the author saying what the author is saying? Why is Paul saying this, right? Imagine yourselves at a restaurant and being back to the, a table behind you and hearing someone say something like, let's go put these guys in the ground. And you think, oh, the mafia is behind me, <laughs> right? But you turn around, you see they're wearing landscaping gear, right? They're talking about trees. There's plant trees. Maybe crocus flowers. I don't know. So the, you have to understand why someone is saying what they're saying. You can't just grab it out of context and go. You cannot. It's a cross-cultural experience. He's talking to a group of people who are in a real and significant danger as well. I need you to understand that as you press into this passage maybe this week. 
They are in danger. If they are thought of as being subversive, they will be killed. The Romans will not hesitate. For instance, in the context of slavery, think about this. Have you heard about the Spartacus Rebellion? Do you remember how it ends? Thousands and thousands crucified along the Via Appia, just to remind you that they won't hesitate. Paul wants them to live in the world, starting with live. He wants them to be alive. So as he's subverting, he has to do it in such a way that they're not just going to be crushed because we're talking about a group of 50 people or so huddled together in a home who are in danger. And they have default cultural norms. Let's get into these cultural norms so we can understand how Paul is subverting them. The first thing you need to understand is Roman households were run by what are called paterfamilias. A paterfamilia is the, the head, the patriarch. Now, it's actually sort of this flow, this diagram, all the way up to the top to Caesar. Caesar is the paterfamilia, and everyone else under him that's a male head of a household is a paterfamilia. And they have complete control. The kids don't even get to leave the house until he says, yeah, okay, I'm done with you here. Women don't get to leave the house unless he says so. He has complete control. Here's how Aristotle talks about it. Because we're about to go into what is actually a household ethic, a household code. Paul's not the only ancient writer who would have done this. Aristotle, Josephus actually writes a sort of alarm, much more alarming one than this. Here's what Aristotle says. Everyone loves Aristotle. Of household management, we have seen that there are the three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father and a third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children. Both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal. The ruler over his wife. This language is quite strong. It's quite strong. I want to also draw your attention to the fact that he only addresses the paterfamilia. The woman's not worthy of being addressed. Aristotle doesn't think so. He doesn't think people are equal. Aristotle doesn't. Over 50% of the Greco-Roman world were slaves, and Aristotle said, yeah, that's right. That's how it should be. He wanted that. So he doesn't address the slaves. He doesn't address the women. He doesn't address the children. But Paul does. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Still talking about the results of the Spirit, still in this context of we all submit to one another in unity, Paul then goes into particulars. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands. He's addressing women. This is radical. They're in the room, first of all. They're allowed to be in the room, first of all. And second of all, they're being addressed. Imagine the confusion of the patriarch of the house where the church is meeting. Did he just say women? Is he addressing them and not me? Doesn't he know the flow? Doesn't he know the flow? Paul doesn't care about the flow. He's addressing women. Now, he says something that we look and we go, oh. And it's almost like what we would expect of a sort of patriarchal or traditional society. But we have to be careful. Here's, here's what he says. For the husband is the head of the wife. We look at that word head and we rip it out of context. We think head of state, right? When you think of the word head, you think of authority. Certainly Aristotle would have. But there are words for that, and Paul doesn't use those words. 
Paul used a Greek word, kephele, which is more like headwaters, more like the trailhead, the beginning of. This changes things quite a bit, I'm going to be honest with you. Because in actuality, in this now but not yet setting, it is true, the patrofamilial is the sort of source of the family. He chose to marry this particular person. He chose how many children to have and then maintain in his household. He chooses who gets what resources and what they do with them. So in the now but not yet, the, 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 the father, the patrofamilia is the head, the head waters. But he says, that the father is the head in this way, like Jesus, the head of the church. Is Jesus the authority of the church? Yes, but the word he's using here is source of the church, the beginning of, the birthplace of, the start of. And what he says is the way that Jesus was head was actually by making himself vulnerable so that other people could be safe. The way that Jesus started this beautiful thing was by sacrificing, even submitting to violent, no good, mangled understanding of how humanity ought to be. Eric pointed this out in our meeting. He starts with a thing we might expect, and then he addresses husbands. There's a way in which this kind of mirrors the, the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the pattern of the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I tell you, therefore. You have heard it said, maybe you understand that you should be submitting, but I'm going to tell you actually men have the same responsibility. They're to love, which is not necessarily the way things would have been that's not the norm. We're talking about 40-year-old men marrying 16-year-old girls, and there is this really massive gap, and this idea that you had to love your spouse was sort of like, eh, maybe not, I don't know. It's like, they didn't think that way. But he says you need to love just as Christ loved the church, sacrificially making them safe. And notice the way he describes how Jesus made the church safe. He says this, by cleansing her, the church, by washing her uh, so that she could present herself without stain or wrinkle, without any blemish. We're talking about domestic work. We're talking about laundry kids. Do you see how he's elevating the mundane to the sacred, elevating the work that the society might have said, this is merely women's work, and he's saying, no, it's beautiful, it's sacred. It's what Jesus did for us. In fact, he's saying, husbands, you need to do that. You think that's just woman's work? No. This is what it's like to be submitting to one another. You get to elevate one another. You get to make a place at the table for one another. It's beautiful. Obviously, we're running out of time. <laughs> but, yes, sir? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, um, let me just say this. Let me just say this, and we'll talk later. Um, he keeps going. He addresses children. You ever heard children ought to speak only when spoken to? 
Imagine Jesus getting down on his, the level of the child saying, you're welcome with me in a world where that was not the case. He's addressing children. They're in the room. That's beautiful. They have equal status in the Lord. Then he addresses slaves. Now this is hard to take as well because he doesn't directly, he doesn't directly condemn slavery, but he dissolves it. He does. Go read Philemon. He tells Philemon, Onesimus, you're a slave. He's like a brother. Treat him like a brother. How could you possibly enslave your brother? How do I know that this is what the Spirit intended? Because this is what the Spirit did. It undid slavery. As people treated one another as equals, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's exactly what took place. And in fact, it's probably true that Paul here is trying to keep the slave safe. To be a runaway slave is a very dangerous thing. To be 50 people who say, we're done with slavery, is a very dangerous thing. But to say, love one another as Christ loved the church is an explosively powerful, impactful, world-changing thing, and that's what happened. Paul wanted slavery to be done, I promise you. And he did it in the only way that lasts. Just look at our own country's history. You know about the 13th Amendment ended slavery? It did not. It moved slavery from the plantation to the prison. Read the history. Law won't do it alone. It has to be transformational. You know what is transforming? When you're filled by the Spirit, with the Spirit, and submitting to one another in love, that's transforming. That's what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what Paul's doing here. In fact, that's what he tells the masters. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do you want to tear down the Bastille? Treat your slaves in the same way you're equal. But what's happening instead of just tearing down the Bastille, it's not, it's pulling the slave up into the dignified status that says we are brothers and sisters. We are. The church began to actually purchase slaves and set them free. Sometimes they sold themselves into slavery so slaves could be set free. I actually have a friend who's doing that very same thing, not selling himself into slavery. Time out. He's not doing that. He's purchasing people out of slavery. He's right here. His name is Pastor Amir and his wife Florence. In Pakistan, right now, their church, Agape Ministries, is purchasing families out of slavery, taking the limited resources that they have and doing that. How does that happen other than being filled by the Spirit and with the Spirit? It's the great leveling, but also the great elevating of humanity. Jesus became like one of us so we could become like him. It's beautiful. I know that this passage sounds scary and the opposite of beautiful, but if you dig, it's beautiful. If you'd like to talk to Pastor Amir and his wife Florence about it afterwards. I'll introduce you. They're doing amazing things in Pakistan. So what do we do when we're filled by the Spirit and with the Spirit? We, 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 we meet together. In our identity is in this one thing that we can't lose. We surround ourselves around Jesus. He's the one that gathers us at the table. We, we speak to the fringe, the, the woman in the room, the slave in the room, the child in the room, in the ancient world, but for us, the person who may be disenfranchised, the person who's vulnerable, the person who's marginalized, we speak to them. We get down on our knees and we look them in the eye because they are made in the image of God and the Spirit of God compels us. We honor them. 
the way Paul does actually in this passage. We, are, we immerse ourselves with the Spirit so that we can be filled by and with the Spirit. Because God has always been working in and through his people. It's what he said to Abraham, I will bless the nations through you. It's what he's saying to you. I will bless the marginalized in your society through you. I will do it. And so we say to one another, like we said earlier, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace and destroy every barrier that has ever told you you weren't allowed to come near. Because no matter what distance or direction you're coming from, you're welcome here at the table of the Lord. He's making a space for you. Let's pray. Lord, we want things that we never would have wanted apart from you. We want equality. We want to take care of one another. We want diverse unity. We want to tear down every barrier that separates people out and bring everyone near. We want only those things. We want those things because of your spirit. We want to be the first signs of spring in a kingdom that is now but not yet. We want to be living out of the fresh air of the future. We want to stop settling for mud pies in the slums when a vacation at the sea is, is, is available to us in your spirit, something beautiful and good. We pray all those things in your son's name. Amen.